we're we're continuing or we're continuing we started last week looking at the book of Galatians um, and we're talking about this this particular uh, epistle this particular letter from Paul to these churches dealing with distractions from the gospel um, that this was a distracted church. This was a church that just, um, they started out well, and then um, Paul, Paul or somebody preached the gospel, and they came to faith, and then some other teachers entered the scenario and started to add on a bunch of other stuff. And particularly, they were adding on Judaism. They wanted people who were Gentiles to become Jews with all of the physical involvement there, all the religious involvement there, before they could be considered good Christians. And Paul is going to answer that. He's going to deal with it um, in a very unique way. And through this series, we're going, to be, we're going to be talking a lot about the identity of the Galatians because um, one of gr- Paul's great skills, one of his, his extraordinary abilities, really, is that he was able to find touchstones in the lives of the people that he was writing to and connect those things to... Uh, Jesus. And he does this all the time. He's always doing this. He's always finding something about their culture, their thinking, their language, and he's making a connection with that to Christ. And he always does this. And he always does it in, a, in this very extraordinarily elaborate way. He will, tend to, he will tend to really flesh an idea out. And he does a lot of this in Galatians. But the culture that he's writing to in, in Galatians is not a normal Mediterranean culture. Um, these people, uh, Galatian, the word Galatoi means uh, Celts, people, people from Gaul, what is today France, and they were Celtic. Um, they were, they were uh, everything that Celts are in the fiction. Shaved heads, white hair, blue faces, sticking, you know, I mentioned last night, uh, Julius Caesar, the way he describes them, um, people try to say it was tattoos, they seem to have actually embedded beads of glass under their skin to make their skin blue. They're a weird group of people. Um, and, uh, and they had moved down through Europe and they had moved through Greece and then they had been brought over into what is today Turkey, what's called the Anatolian Plain, um, as mercenaries to secure the borders of a kingdom. And, uh, and then they caused all kinds of havoc um, and the Greeks got together and they basically... Um, what they actually did was they called a gathering of all the chieftains of the tribes of the, the, the Celts. They all got together, and then, this sounds like something from fiction, but this actually happened, then the Greeks slaughtered all but one of them. One guy escaped, and then they hunted down all the chieftains that didn't come to the thing, um, and then they took the Celts, and they all kind of herded them into a particular area. Um, and they said, now you're going to live here, kind of like a, almost like an Indian reservation. It's very much kind of the same way, except the, the Gauls were the ones that were invading, not the other way around. But. So this is a weird people. They don't like Greeks, but they love Romans. They love the Romans for a lot of reasons that I'm not going to get into. So when Paul writes to them, he writes in a particular way that appeals to them. It connects what they know of the world to Christ, and he, he makes those connections. So I'm going to read a kind of a lengthy passage today. Um, and then just talk about the first part. But we're going we're gonna to spend the next few weeks in the past, basically from chapter 1, Galatians 1, uh, 11, to the end of chapter 2. It's this big, long passage. Um, not, it's not like super huge, but I want to read the whole thing so that you get the whole vibe before we get in and start kind of breaking the pieces apart. 
of what Paul is saying. So Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached by me, that preached by, the gospel that was preached by me was, is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's his opening statement. Now he's going to explain how that happened. You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles... I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Kepha and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before the Lord, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ." They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brother, brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter, that's the same guy as Kepha earlier, as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Kephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Kepha came to Antioch, I opposed him face to face because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James, uh, for, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews act hip hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kepha before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because of the work, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, 
We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though the law, through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by, the faith, by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, as we look again to the word, as we look to the words of the Apostle Paul, may we have clarity of mind and heart as we consider his words given to us um, so many years ago through your Holy Spirit to teach us, to encourage us, to transform us. May these written words show us the living word. Lord, may we see Christ and follow him. We pray this in his name. Amen. The Apostle Paul talks about the way he was. And I'm just going to look at just a couple of verses here because I think that it's important that we understand what he is doing. It's so easy, it's so easy to read what Paul is doing and saying, well, he's just talking about his relationship, his Judaism, um, and how God saved him out of, out of kind of legalism. When Paul says this in verse 13, For you have heard of my former life. He says, you know how I was, my old conduct, my old way. Now Paul only uses this particular phrase, this particular Greek phrase, twice. Once he uses it here to describe his Jewish piety, and once he uses it in Ephesians to describe the former lives of the Gentile believers in Ephesus. What Paul is saying is, what came before Christ doesn't matter. Now, it's not that we don't live with the repercussions of that. It's not that we, don't, we, we can just say, well, now I'm a Christian and it's all gone. When I was a, a Christian school teacher, one of the big problems we had in the school was every time a kid did something wrong, they would just get saved again, and then they couldn't be punished for it. And I, I saw through that sham. Um, I, knew, I knew what was going on. It's like uh, one time there's a, a, a writer um, I can't remember his name wrote a book about uh, wrote a book about going to 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 church camp and describes it and he says church camp was great I get saved every summer um, and and unfortunately that's what people do and it's not that it's not that the camps or the schools are trying to create a situation where this happens but there's a misunderstanding that if you know well clearly if i did this thing i must be i must not be a christian so i got to get saved again and all of this and there's there's a lot of wacky theology behind that that has to be corrected but what the apostle paul says he says this is what i was without christ you know what i was without christ and then when he speaks to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22, where he uses the same phrase, he says, you know what you were without Christ. And the reality is, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, free or slave, barbarian or Greek, man or woman, what you were before Christ is not what you are in Christ. There is something different that happens. There is a quickening of the Spirit that God works, a miracle, a supernatural change in who you are. Now, Paul has an interesting way of phrasing this as he talks about it. 
He says that, look at what he says. You've heard, uh, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism through many, beyond many of my own age uh, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now, this is, this is a similar phrase. Jesus actually says traditions of my elders, but Jesus, uh, traditions of your elders. But Jesus describes the traditions of the elders or the traditions of the fathers as the, the wrong interpretation of the Old Testament that was present in Judaism in his day. Uh, I, if you're not familiar with this, the, the, there were basically two major religious parties at the time of Christ in Judaism. The Pharisees, or the pure ones, that's what their, ter- their name means, and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were kind of the popular um, people who taught in the villages and synagogues, and they kind of scattered out in the countryside. And the Sadducees were the ones that pretty much ran the priesthood. And they were pretty much central, centralized in Jerusalem. Um, and they kind of controlled this. And the, the interesting thing about the two of them is if you were to ask which one of them took the Old Testament more literally, it was actually the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection because they said you can't find that in the Old Testament. The Sadducees didn't believe, they believed a lot of things that they, that they espoused because they said, well, it's not in the Bible. Now, they used that as a loophole. They said, well, you know, the Bible doesn't forbid polygamy, so hey... You know, the, the Bible doesn't forbid this. There's nothing in the Bible. They were hyper-literalists. The Pharisees, on the other hand, actually had the Torah, the written Torah, and then they had what they called the oral Torah, that there were traditions being passed down from teacher to teacher to teacher, theoretically coming all the way from Moses, uh-huh, uh-huh, um, of God only revealed part of, the, part of the law, but then there was a whole other part of the law that wasn't written down that you used to interpret the part that was written down. Uh, now, this is an interesting interpretational lens because um, in, a society, in a society where you have a written scripture and you insist that the interpretation is only passed down by word of mouth, guess how many people it takes to change an interpretation? One. All he has to do is, no, no, this is what it means. And as long as he doesn't tell you what the other people told you, that's all you've got. Right? Oh, oh, that's what he means. I, we call this, by the way, we call this the horizon, um, a, a philosophical horizon. The world only exists to the horizon of the person that told me how it exists. Um, you know, and and uh, we we all have that to a certain extent. Like like, how do you know the, if you haven't been to the Great Wall of China? How do you know the Great Wall of China exists? Well, I saw pictures. Somebody took the pictures, right? So you only know it exists because somebody else did it. But when you actually go, then you can say. I was there. Then somebody else only knows it exists because you tell them. You know. anyway. Um, but anyway, th- this is kind of a, an interesting, it's an interesting epistemological situation. I'm not going to get into it. I'll distract myself. But he, he's talking about these traditions of my fathers. He says, look, you know who I was. You know my life before Christ. And you know that I was overzealous. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Then he does a weird switch that unfortunately is not present in our English translation because they translate a phrase dynamically rather than literally. Um, he says this but in verse 15, but when he who had set me par- apart before I was born, that line before I was born actually means um, out of my mother's womb. That's actually what the Greek uh, underlying it is. Um, they don't translate it that way. Uh, there's lots of issues with translation. It's called an idiomatic translation or a dynamic translation. 
But he shifts his focus. Now he does this for a lot of reasons, I think, but, but he shifts his focus from the traditions of my fathers, all right? And, and think about this. Who creates the traditions of my fathers? My fathers, all right? They create the traditions of my fathers. Who puts life in the womb of a mother? God. That's the Jewish belief. The Jewish belief was, and they understood the biology behind it, but they, but they believed the spark of life came from God. That the reason that a woman became pregnant was because God intended that person to be born. That was, that, they believed that. It was a very strong position. Um, it was one of the reasons why barrenness was such a big deal in the Old Testament. Because women who didn't have children, they thought they were not being blessed by God. They, they had this mindset, and God, you know, you get Sarah and Elizabeth, and God says, no, no, you've got this all wrong. Because, um, uh, uh, anyway, so he, he contrasts the traditions of my fathers, which are created by men, with who I was in the womb. I was zealous about what other men had created, but God had intended me for something else. And when I was born and I, start, and, I, and I was walking around, then I got corrupted by the traditions of men. And then God called me, he says. He says, um, when he, had, he who had set me apart before I was born, set me apart out of my mother's womb, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. This is how Paul views his conversion. Now, this is interesting. He doesn't say it this way in Acts. He tells the story of his conversion three times in the book of Acts. And he never explains it this way. He only explains it this way to the Galatians. And what he says is, I was born to be God's apostle to the Gentiles. In the womb he had intended this for me. Then as a man I followed the traditions of men. And when God chose to, he acted upon his call of grace on me and revealed his son. Now, what does that tell us? Well, first of all, Paul's attitude toward his calling, even in the womb, is not original with Paul. The, the, the prophet Jeremiah has a revelation from the Lord. He says in Jeremiah 1.4, he says, when, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. I created you for this. Now this is good, because what this tells us is that when God gives life, He gives purpose and function. There are no worthless human beings. God gives life. I won't make commentary on the implications of that in our modern society, but you can guess my position on life. There are no worthless human beings. And so God gives life and gives purpose, but every single sinful human being gets trapped in the traditions of men. Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, Greek or barbarian, the traditions of men, the manner of life that exists, we become prisoners to that. And that way is death. The Apostle Paul says we are dead in our sins without Christ. But he who called me by his grace revealed his son to me. I was born to be God's man. 
I lived to be man's man. God transformed me. Now look at the shift of focus that Paul is making because he's talking about how the gospel he preached in verse 11 was not pre- is not man's gospel. He says, you want to know what the foundation for what I preached to you was. It is not because I heard something really cool from somebody one day and decided it was a good thing to say. Which is what the Jews are doing. The Jews are coming in, these Jewish believers, and they were, they were Jewish I'm going to put quotations in Margaret, Christians who were coming into Galatia telling everybody they had to be circumcised, they had to follow the Torah, they were going through this all thing. If you don't follow the law, if you don't do the mitzvot, you're not going to be, you're not righteous before God. They were bringing all of this in. And the Apostle Paul says, the problem is, that's all traditions of men. It was never the purpose of the commandments of God. In fact, Jesus makes this point in the Gospel of Mark. He says that, you, that the traditions of men pervert the commandments of God. He says, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew and you're following the Torah, the traditions of men built on the Torah, or you're a Greek following the traditions of men built on Homer and Aristotle and Sophocles, or you're a Galatian following the traditions of men set on worshiping in oak trees and druids and all that stuff. It doesn't matter where you are. If you're an American following the traditions of men set up by the Western church, whatever it is, that is not what you were called to be. You were called into a gospel that is not the traditions of men. And the only way that we're able to truly see what the gospel is if we are, is that we have to be honest about the traditions we surround ourselves with. Um, my dad, who I love very dearly, does not understand how I preach without a pulpit. And he has made this very argument to me, the, the pulpit communicates authority that you are speaking to your people from the word of God. I love my dad, but he's wrong. The apostle Paul did not walk around the Mediterranean world with a folding pulpit. (laughs) He did not go to Areopagus and go, Beloved, we have gathered here today to hear my sermon. Now I will be honest, my dad, especially in his youth, such an amazing speaker that he made the pulpit disappear even though it was there. You felt like he was speaking right into you. He was an extraordinary speaker. Um, always was. Always a great mind. But he believes he needs that, that pulpit and he needs that necktie to communicate to you that he is the pastor and he is in a position of authority to speak the word of God to you. Now I love him and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with him having a pulpit, wearing a tie. I say kudos proud. When I preach at his church, when I attend his church, I wear a tie. I carry my King James Bible. I never play songs that have the main beat on the two and the four. I, you know, I, I, I have absolutely no issue whatsoever with his, his behavior. But let's be honest, it's a tradition of men. The pulpit is a tradition of men. The idea that a church has to be a certain way. What color did Puritans paint their churches? You guys know this is a trick question, right? Puritans believed that paint was an ornamentation. They did not paint their churches. They left them natural wood. Why did they all get painted? Because after a few generations, they realized they got tired of replacing natural wood paneling, and they said, hey, we should paint this bad boy. And they picked white. That was what they did. Why do we have a steeple on a church building? This is an interesting question. Do you know why there's a steeple on a church building? 
so people will know it's a church. It was always the highest structure in, the, in a New England town. You were not allowed to build anything higher than the steeple of the church so everybody knew where the church was, so they could see it anywhere in town. That's why, that's why New England churches have steeples. It's why cathedrals, the towers are always so high in, in cathedrals, so you can see them from your neighborhood. wherever. If you're in that parish, you can see that church and go to it. That's why it's there. Does the Bible command us to have steeples? No, oh, it doesn't. Now, are traditions wrong? Or is lifestyle wrong? Is culture wrong? No, they're not wrong, but they're also not gospel. And we have to be willing to strip away all of those things that aren't gospel so that we can get to the core of the gospel that has been communicated to us by Christ through his apostles like Paul. And that's why Paul says, you need to know where I'm coming from to know that what I'm presenting to you is not just another tradition of men. So he gets into this. Now, what's interesting is the way that he tells it. I'm not going to get into a whole detail, but he, the fact that he, he brings up the mother is a very interesting thing in the Galatians. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a historical nugget just so you can, you can take this and file it away. One of the things that the, the Celts were known for is their worship of female deities. Um, Celtic, Celtic archaeological digs all over Europe, you, you can always tell a Celtic site um, because they will almost always have two things. Torques, which are like, um, they're like neck bracelets. They're not necklaces. They're, they're like round things. And um, they always, and they wore them around their arms. They wore them around their necks. Um, torques and female goddess figures. They will always have those in Celtic sites. Always. Doesn't matter what era. Doesn't matter Iron Age, Bronze Age. Doesn't matter. They're always going to have one of those, those two things. Um, it's just how, how the Celts lived. When they got to Asia Minor, the, the Greeks, if you're familiar with Greek, the, uh, Greek mythology, the Greeks really like their male characters. The female characters are there, um, but they're usually just somebody's consort, or they're tricky and deceptive. If you read Homer's Odyssey, there's like these little things. There's like competitions between Athena and the other gods, and she's trying to manipulate things. But generally, if you think about Greek mythology, you always think about guys, right? I mean, you, you had Zeus and Apollo and you know, all of those characters. That's usually the, the characters we talk about. Well, in Asia Minor, the Phrygians particularly, um, which are the people that lived in the area where the Galatians were, they loved their female goddess. Out on the coast, they had Artemis of Ephesus. Um, and she was, she was really, really popular. She was a really popular goddess. But in the inside, they had a, in the interior, they had a goddess named Sibella. She was worshipped at the top of, a, a, she, they, they believe she was a mountain called Ida. I can get into that. I, don't, I can't even imagine if she was a real person. It was like, you're like a mountain. Um, but, um, but they had this female goddess, and her entire purpose was giving life. That was what she did. Um, she was the life giver. She later on was equated with Gaia, which is the earth and, and, and things. And the Romans loved this. And so they built this. The, the, the Galatians had at their capital, they had this huge temple complex to Sibella. Um, and here is a great case of the Apostle Paul, uh, first of all, agreeing, that's interesting, in principle to the idea that, that, um, that men aren't always right. We'll get into that in Paul. Um, but he always, Paul is always elevating women. Um, he's always bringing them to the forefront of his narrative. Luke does the same thing. But then also showing a contrast because um, women had no authority in Judaism. Okay, women were not allowed to speak in the synagogue. 
they, 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 were, they were, could be reproved and rebuked um, if they spoke out of turn to a man who wasn't their husband or their son. There, there, was, there was a lot of, a, 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 honest, if I'm being totally honest, a lot of what exists in, we make fun of, you know, we kind of point out the civil injustice in Islam about their treatment about women. A lot of that is very similar to ancient, the Pharisaical Judaism. It's, it's not that far off. Um, Muhammad seems to have gotten a lot of that actually from, from a common root. It's not Bible, it's, guess what, traditions of the fathers, it's traditions of men. The fact that the Apostle Paul elevates a woman, he says, this is, this is who I was when I was in my mother's womb. He brings to the forefront this, this, this something that's going to immediately register in them. Mother is a giver of life. She's, she's the, the hope spring. She's, she's the... I should have started this series a week ago so I could do this on Mother's Day. Um, but th- this, was, this was everything to them. The women were everything to them. They, they literally worshipped their women. And he brings this in. He says, this is who I was in my mother's womb. Now what's interesting about that is this idea of purity in the womb before they enter. He's not making a doctrinal statement here. He's making a, a practical statement that I was pure and then I was corrupted by the traditions of my father's. And so God returns me back to that pure state. They would have immediately understood this by the evocation of the mother, what he was talking about. It's a side nugget. It's not really super important, but it's there. When we look through this, though, and this is important, this is, this is, I, I'm giving you a lot of stuff, but I want to I drill down to, a, to an idea. Paul honestly recounts who he was before Christ who God had called him to be in his mother's womb and then who God had transformed him to be, called and revealed his son. And then he's going to go through this long explanation of where he was and we're going to talk about that next week. Um, I went here and then I went here and here's the process and this is all this thing and all this stuff. But, But let's bore down to real something we can grab from this because I think this is important. Paul only knows that he had been living in man's traditions and then who he had, he had intended to be in his mother's womb. God called him to be that person. He only knows that in hindsight. He didn't know it in the moment. When Paul was a, was a violent persecutor of the church, he thought he was doing the right thing. Because human beings tend to do the things they think are the right thing. Now some of us are just wacky and nuts and want to watch the world burn. But for the most part, people tend to do what they think is the right thing. He thought he was doing the right thing. It was not until uh, Jesus quite literally knocked him down and roughed him up that he realized he was wrong. And even when he realized it, even when Jesus was revealed to him on the Damascus Road in the book of Acts, he says, and as soon as I saw that, I ran off to figure out what I had seen. That's what he's saying. He says, he says, I had to figure out what was going on. I was not going to make the mistake I had made before in following the traditions of men. Now, years later, he can look back over his spiritual journey and say, this is who I was intended to be when I was formed in the womb. This is where I was as a persecutor of the church. And this is where Jesus called me. But he only sees that in hindsight. Why is that important? Why, why do I want you to think about that? 
Because it is so, so easy for us as Christians to slip into judgment mode about where people are in their spiritual journey. I do it, you do it, let's be honest about it. Every once in a while, we run into somebody, we go, wow, Jesus has got his work cut out for them. I don't know what he's going to do on that person. And whether we do it consciously or unconsciously, we sometimes dismiss the possibility that God could work in the life of someone because of where they are at the current context. Boy, that person is a troublemaker. Boy, that person has got a real issue. That person, they're, they're never going to be used of God. God's never going to get a hold of their heart. They are, they are way out there. You know, we can only observe faith in hindsight. We can only observe the, the, the growth of the spiritual growth of people in hindsight. So rather than passing judgment in the moment, we've got to give it a little breath. Now, do you guys know what happened to the Apostle Paul when he, he tried to visit the church in the book of Acts? He showed up and they went, we don't trust that guy. He's a persecutor of the church. We're not gonna. It took them decades to trust him. And clearly, according to Galatians, there were some that still didn't trust him. But Paul can look back in hindsight and speak with confidence about where he was, who he was intended to be, and when God touched his life. Theologically, often people get into this, this game of trying to decide who is, a, who, who is chosen or elect to be Christians and who isn't. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't try to be judge for God. That, that there be dragons. Don't, don't go there. Instead, continually think. I would encourage you to do this. Continually be thinking about whether a person is headed toward Christ or away from them. And be encouraged by the minute changes that bring people closer to Jesus. Sometimes people explode with faith. Sometimes they're at a church service and something happens and they jump up and run around like crazy and they are instantly transformed and that's awesome and that's cool and that's great and it's biblical. But then some of us are just a long, slow, steady burn. Resistance to the Spirit, fighting, challenging questions. And it is so easy to go, well, clearly that person's never going to become a believer. When we give up on somebody, we're giving up on God. When you give up on loving somebody who is unlovable, now I'm not saying tolerating and enabling, I'm saying loving. When you give up on loving somebody, because clearly God will never reach them, why were you loving them in the first place? Why were you sharing the gospel in the first place? Why were you serving and loving and ministering in the first place? Now, this is an application. This isn't really in the text. But it's, but it's important that we understand Paul could only look at his faith journey and recognize the steps that God took to bring him where he was in hindsight. And we can only truly understand what God was doing in our lives when we look back in hindsight. When you go through your journey, you don't know where God is taking you in the moments that you're in. 
Would, would you go through the things that God put you through um, if you knew they were coming? Would you evaluate whether it would be really be worth it to endure what you go through in your life? Well, yeah, I mean, God's going to make me a better witness, a better dad, a better father, but it's going to stink the whole time, so I don't want to do that. Do we not, would we not do that? And so we have to consider, I mean, look at Paul's type and look at what it did to him. Look at where he went, how he endured. And then when we get to the second part of the passage, because of what he understood, what he was able to face. I mean, this is a dude who faces down Simon Peter. He must have certainly known what he was talking about. He must have had confidence and faith in what God has been doing in him. But I guarantee you it was only because he could look back over a journey that God had been at work at. I was asked once, how many people got saved at Bedford Road last year? Not by somebody in our church, another pastor. And my answer really bothered that pastor. Because I said, I don't know, I don't keep track. What do you mean you don't keep track? How do you know whether you're being an effective pastor if, you, if people aren't coming to faith? I said, I didn't say people aren't coming to faith. I said, I don't keep track. Because when I keep track, and this is again, this is not necessarily true of everybody, but if I keep track, I will take credit. I know me. I know my arrogance. I know my self-absorption. I will take credit. So I choose not to take, keep track. And you know what? If you're here at Bedford Road and you've crossed the line of faith and you're ready to make that public declaration of faith, we will baptize you and we will say, when we baptize you, this was God that did this. Not Eric, not Bedford Road, not our awesomeness. I mean, we are pretty awesome, but that, that's not what did it, but rather God. And we can look back in hindsight and say, well, God did that. And you know what? Those of you that are with us and are not believers yet, you haven't crossed that line of faith. We're still looking back and saying, wow, look at what God is doing in that person's life. And won't it be great one day when we can celebrate that moment of faith? But I'm okay with looking back. I, 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 don't, I don't need to see results right now. Hindsight, here's our big idea. Hindsight allows us to see grace at work, working, and doing and in the future. Hindsight allows us to see what grace has done, is doing, and will doing will be doing we are able to affirm the power of the Holy Spirit in our past which gives us confidence in our present that he will lead us into our future and that's what fuels power, Paul's apostleship not Paul walking around going don't you know who I am he doesn't say that right he doesn't say that he says don't you know what the gospel that was preached? It was not of men. Let me tell you why. And that's because in hindsight, he could look back and see what God, grace had done, 
what it was doing and would do. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are thankful for every step we take on fa- in our faith walk, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing. We have faith in you that you will reveal to us. You will show us how you have been at work. No matter the difficulty, no matter the struggle, and you may not do it until we are in your presence, in the kingdom, in eternity, but we will trust you. Help us not to force your hand. Help us not to speak for you. Help us not to rush your work, but to simply be faithful in doing what you've called us to do for the reasons you have called us to do them, hearing your spirit and your work and your will. 